Welcome back, everybody, to the Liberty on Fire podcast, where we discuss hot topics in the news and on social media. I have some updates for you guys this week. Um, Please, if you get a chance, go check out our website, libertyonfire.org. On the website, you'll find a, a blogging area. You can make comments on some of our blogs, and just today I wrote my first blog ever. Uh, Other things on the website, uh, there are some links to uh, Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom, which is uh, a subscription-based product where you can get tons of courses on American history, the Constitution, American presidents, uh, economics, and a whole lot more. For the first time ever, I set up a Patreon page for those of you who would like to donate and help out the show. Any money that we get on Patreon will go towards podcast expenses and towards promoting the show. None of it, I promise, none of it will go in our pocket. Now, with all those announcements out of the way, let's get back to the show. Well, Joey, welcome back. Today is February 22nd, and I hear you want to start out the show with a little update on what you found out about this whole McCabe situation. Yeah, well, it's concerning to me. I think this should be bigger news than than it really is. I haven't really seen too much on all this stuff. And we've just found out recently that the Justice Department was having internal discussions and meetings about ousting a sitting U.S. president based off of really nothing that I could see no grounds to really base it off of. And we heard it from McCabe, who was giving an interview to CBS, I believe, for his 60, for 60 minutes on his new book coming out, right? Sure, he wants to sell a whole bunch of copies. Yeah, and this is the former deputy director of the FBI, who was, that means you're one under the director of FBI, and he became acting director after Comey was fired, right? So on this 60 Minutes interview... He talks about when Comey was fired, and he talks about how he was when he became the acting FBI director. He's troubled by Trump taking over because of possible Russian collusion. And let me get the quote if I can if I can find the quote. Okay, so he says he was troubled and alarmed that Trump might have won the White House with the aid of government, the aid of the government of Russia. And then he says there were meetings with the Justice Department at which it was discussed whether the vice president and majority of the cabinet would be brought together to remove the president of the United States under the 25th Amendment. So the 25th Amendment has nothing that you can't, that's for if if the president is disabled and can't function to do his job properly. So you have the now acting director of the FBI calling a meeting with the Justice Department in which Rod Rosenstein was in there, the deputy attorney general, to talk about how they can use the 25th Amendment, perverting it to oust the president of the United States because of why? Because they don't, they don't like him. Maybe they, they, I don't. You know what? What would be the reason here? They don't like his tweeting. I yeah, that's probably one big reason why. I mean, this is pretty much scheming at the top level of the FBI and, and the Justice Department to bring down the president of the United States, who is democratically elected to be there by the people. And this is not really what a republic should be, right? It's a, it's totally a coup. And it's it's definitely a concern, and I don't think it's really, this is really big news in my opinion, that we're learning this is happening. Let me guess, hardly any of the news stations are covering it. 
I don't see it personally that often. You know, I, I don't see see much of it. It was it's pretty quiet on the on the news front. I mean, you, you heard it for a couple of days, and then it was gone. I wonder if McCabe, in the uh, process of promoting his book, will end up coming across, a, I guess, a journalist who will actually do their job and ask some tough questions. But he kind of let a lot of things slip in in that long interview, didn't he? That he probably shouldn't have. Well, I don't think he should have let that slip. And he was, I heard, trying to backtrack it and blame it on Rod Rosenstein, saying it wasn't me who was who was planning this meeting. It was it was Rod Rosenstein. And and they also talked about in in that CBS interview that Rod Rosenstein. Am I saying his name right, by the way? That's close enough. That he was willing to wear a wire to his meetings with Trump. And he's the he's the deputy attorney general. How, what is why is he going to wear a wire to try and what to try and implicate Trump and 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 how does that connect with their attempt to maybe use the Twenty Fifth Amendment? Are they trying to? He's just trying to go in there and catch Trump saying stupid stuff or something. Yeah, it's a big setup. It's obviously still very murky because we probably will never get all the details. Hopefully they'll keep coming out. Hopefully, I guess some journalists will push for more answers. And, and hopefully, hopefully Trump is going to do something other than tweet about it to, to fight back. Um, I mean, he fired Comey, but you know, that was a long time ago. I mean, a lot has happened since then. The, there's so many people look like they should be fired from the FBI. And, and it looks, this is like what the swamp is to me. All this like tight circle of, of people here that are all politically motivated, it seems to me anyway, and they're all political, like aligned to the left and the Democrat. He's not. He's not doing a very good job draining the swamp, is he? Not quick enough, and no, not really good enough, in my opinion. It's all very slow. It's all very reactive too, not very proactive. Yeah, I, I wonder how much power he actually has to drain the swamp. I'm sure there are a lot of. Uh, people that have been there for years have connections that have been there for years that uh, I'm sure will prevent him from really probably doing what he wants to do, if that's his goal. I mean, he talks about it. I, I just, you know, is it really one of his goals for his administration to try to drain the swamp? Who knows? No, it might have been more of a talking a talking point, to be honest. I'm not sure he's, that was really a big thing of his, but it riled up the base. Okay. Anything else on this situation? I mean, with with McCabe wanting to hold a meeting to to try and oust the president, I'm just confused at the at the grounds that he thinks this is something he should be doing. I mean, there's no evidence, and there's less evidence the more we we wait on this whole Mueller investigation as far as R- Russia collusion goes. So there's no real grounds for that. So the only thing I could imagine is McCabe's just a a lefty and Democrat, and it's just, this is all political sort of motivation. And so that's the first thing to ask: uh, is is McCabe a Democrat, right? That that could be, I guess, one of his motivations is just he doesn't like Trump. Maybe he wished Hillary was in there or something. Yeah, you know, I I have no idea if if this McCabe guy is part of what Ron Paul would call the deep state. Uh, he probably is if he's been in the position of power, uh, like the FBI. 
So yeah, I, I don't know if McCabe is part of the deep state or if this is all just some sort of political motivation. What do you what do you think about that? I don't know if he's part of the deep state, but politically corrupt, I would say so. I mean, do you think that in FB enacting FBI deputy or even the the one under the deputy, whatever it's called, uh, or sorry, a director of FBI, the acting director of FBI, should uh, that guy be party affiliated, really, to Democrat or Republican? Well, they're not supposed to be, but every everybody is. You'd imagine everyone is, okay, to a to a degree. So you'd hope, okay, even if he is a Democrat or Republican, it's just, you know, to a small degree, not strong, right? You wouldn't want these guys to be huge like Republican or Democrat activist type, right? But how do you select against that? How do you make sure a someone all the way to the left or all the way to the right doesn't get put in a, in a position like that? Well, if you have evidence that they are, you know, maybe they maybe that should be conflict of interest. Like in McCabe's McCabe's deal, his wife was running for senator uh, a Senate seat of Virginia as a Democrat. So that's pretty strong politics in your in your family. If your own wife is running for a Democrat senator, and his wife had one third of her funding given to her from political agencies associated with the Virginia governor, uh, what's his name? It Tony uh, T- Terry. Is it McAuliffe? Yeah, McAuliffe, who was the chief fundraiser of Bill Clinton in the 1990s, and are extremely tight with the Clintons. So McCabe's wife when she was running in 2015, had a third of her entire funding coming from someone who is really, really tight, a big player in the Democratic Party, is really, really tight with Bill and Hillary Clinton. I mean, how is this not a conflict of interest? That guy, that wife, that girl's husband becomes the the uh, dep- the director of the FBI during, during the Clinton investigation? I mean, how is that not fishy and murky right there? Right. Well, I mean, all all politics is is murky, and it's it's all dirty. And I'll correct myself real quick. He he was at, he became the uh, deputy director during the Clinton administration, the Clinton uh, email investigations. But he was in charge of it during that time, or a good portion of it. So, so I mean, it's safe to say this guy was you know he's very very party affiliated to the, the left and Democrat very strongly, uh, you know. That's a big probable reason why why he's so anti-Trump. I mean, it's an anti-Trumper is what it is, who is heading the FBI. I guess for me, it's a, what would Trump do about that coming into office? Is he supposed to try to figure out where all the knives are going to come, try to stab him in the back, and then proactively fire all those people or replace them? I think that's a tall order for, for someone who wasn't really much of a, a politician, you know, before two years ago. No, I don't know what he could have done. I'm just saying the FBI itself should never have allowed someone like that to be deputy director or de- director. It's just, it was so rotten inside that organization. Forget even Trump. I mean, the fact that they, that organization, uh, the Justice Department who oversees the FBI, allows a director that has such ties to, to, you know, the Democrat Party during the Clinton, I don't know, it's all, it's all messy. I would say, Joey, that that's actually by design, that you're not going to get to that high level of office without having some kind of strong political ties to a powerful political family. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And that's, 
that's concerning. And that's and that's kind of I. It's all eye opening to me. Like I'm seeing that sort of through this. Well, you are certainly a young, naive kid, I guess. I mean, how old are you now? Like 16? Mm-hmm, 28, yeah. Oh, good. All right. Well, pretty close. So, yes, this is very disturbing. Uh, it, it's a coup that's, try, or at least it was tried to happen during my lifetime, which is amazing because I, th- I kind of thought all these things just happened with our uh, CIA overseas. It didn't happen on our soil. And uh, we're witnesses to it. But we don't have all the details yet, and hopefully we'll get, I guess, more over the next couple of months. Uh, I hope it's not all covered up and that maybe some of these people can be uh, brought to justice. But, you know, just justice is only something, in my opinion, that the middle class actually believes exists. I think the rich people and the poor people know otherwise. Yeah, I think you're right. This isn't the only snaky and and sketchy thing this guy McCabe has done against Trump and and his administration. And if you want to go into the the story I've heard about him in, in 2017 dealing with the leaks. Yes, please do. So this one I just learned about recently, so forgive me if I can't recall it perfectly. But in McCabe in 2017, Reince Priebus was the chief of staff of the Trump administration at this time, okay? And it was uh, Howard Kurtz, who who is a media, writes about the media. He was a Washington Post journalist before, and then he worked for Fox and writes about the media. So he, he wrote a book. And the book is called Media Madness, Donald Trump, The Press and the War Over the Truth. And, he, and in the book, he talks about a really sketchy, manipulative thing McCabe did in 2017. So he, he goes to Reince Priebus, McCabe does, uh, 7.30 in the morning at an intelligence meeting. Okay, so McCabe, McCabe was one of the participants in this meeting, and Reince Priebus was sort of chairing that meeting. Okay, and at this time in 2017, there was a New York Times story that – was pretty much saying that an unknown source reported to them that Trump campaign aides and associates had repeated contacts with Russian intelligence officials. Okay, and CNN ran the same report. So the New York Times and CNN were running this report about, you know, Trump and and, and aides and collusion, possible at least contact. So it was a big deal, and Reince was dealing with it, and he was getting some, you know, stress from the press over it. So McCabe goes up to him after this meeting and says to him, hey, we want you to know that um, the FBI's looked at this and everything in this story is, is total BS. So, you know, it's it's not true. We, or we, we've already looked into it. And Priebus says, hey, you know, my problem is this is going on 24-7 on every TV here. I mean, can the FBI just come out and publicly say what you just told me? Take some heat off? Because this is kind of ridiculous. So, and McCabe tells Priebus then that um, he doesn't he doesn't think we can do that, but I'll, I'll ask Comey. He sort of says, like, um, it's not the FBI can't get involved in, in confirming or denying rumors that uh, something like the New York Times talks about because then they'd be doing it all the time. And Comey called Priebus later and relayed the same information. Hey, I can't get into this. And of course, Priebus was like, "Come on, man! You just told me this stuff privately, and I'm and it's it's really annoying to our administration. And why can't you just publicly say that you've already found this was nothing, right?" So anyway, 
it was like a week later, CNN airs a breaking news story naming Priebus, and it says, according to multiple U.S. officials, CNN says, the FBI rejected a White House request to publicly knock down the media reports about communications between Donald Trump's associates and the Russian U.S. intelligence, basically implying that Priebus and the Trump administration were putting pressure on the FBI to try and you know, knock down these reports and, and made it look bad. So it was an, another cycle of news making Trump administration look bad. Two fake news is in a row because the first one that New York Times posted was fake. And I remember that people were talking about it as, you know, Russian collusion. Here we go. There it is. And then another news cycle that's fake, basically uh, talking about how they heard, you know, Priebus was putting pressure on the FBI. And how would they know that? The only way they could have known that was if it was leaked by Comey or McCabe. So the guy who wrote this, uh, Howard, believes you know it was McCabe who who purposely trapped and set up Priebus and then leaked a story about him wanting the FBI to handle it. What what do you think about that? That's some snaky stuff. Absolutely, it, it totally sounds like a setup. I mean, you can't make it up. You can't make this kind of stuff up. No, this uh, belongs in a novel. This is something that you would kind of uh be like a page turner late at night that you, you... exactly what i'm thinking it's like a, like a movie we're dealing with but it's f- so funny when you go back and you remember some of these stuff that cnn reported and new york times reported and um people at like my office who are very liberal and stuff would be would be talking about this and it's just it, it turns out it's fake news after fake news after fake news trump's enemies will uh do i guess pretty much anything to discredit him or you know to give him a hard time or to try to get him out of office it's it's pretty disgusting you didn't see really any of this going on under barack obama Uh, there were plenty of people in the country and plenty of politicians who uh, i'm sure absolutely hated obama but you know they gave him his due as president and as far as i know nobody tried to impeach him or uh, you know, kind of throw him out with using the uh, 25th Amendment. And I'm sure there's always some kind of plotting in the background and fighting amongst the Democrats and Republicans. There always is. I can't remember anything to this extent that is happening under Trump. And not once has anybody offered any real evidence of any Russian collusion. Not once. And I think recently, in the past couple of weeks, there was a, wasn't there a Senate committee that was looking into the Russian collusion thing, and they looked at, was it like over two years, and probably, I think they did about 200 interviews, and they looked over about 100,000 documents, and they couldn't find one shred of evidence of Russian collusion. The biggest thing that I remember the media finding or, or talking about was the Trump Jr., um, meeting at Trump Tower with Russian, maybe uh, Russian lawyers or something like that. Some story that turned out to be a possible setup again. But I mean, to me, that that kind of just makes sense. It's someone calls you up. I'm assuming it happened this way. Someone calls you up and says, hey, uh, I've got some dirt on Hillary. Would you like to know about it? Uh, I'd be like, hell yeah. I'll go hear what you have to say. It's not illegal it's not going to harm me yeah it, it doesn't sound it sounds pretty obvious and, and natural 
But I'm, and I think it was later on we found out the person he was talking to was was a client of the guy who who was involved in setting up the uh, the dossier thing. You know, I don't have my facts totally on that one. All right, Joey, uh, is there anything else we need to, I guess, talk about with this current situation, or do we have to just wait and see how things unfold? Yeah, I'll just keep waiting and seeing and seeing what happens and what else comes out. I'm really waiting for the the Mueller thing to end already. Yeah, that's been going on forever. Uh, I would be shocked. I'd really be shocked if he actually was able to produce any real evidence of Russian collusion. Yeah, I don't know if it might go on until the next. They might push it until the next election, and then by that time he may not find anything, but he may say something like, "I can't unequivocally say that there was no connection." Something like leaving it open ended. I don't know. At this point, I think Trump should just be like, "Hey, dude, put up or shut up." And if you're not, you're not gonna reveal what you have. I'm just gonna fire you. Yeah, I mean, and you look at what we've already found with McCabe. And, and his snakiness and the snakiness of the deputy attorney general and Rod Rosenstein willing to wear a wire, them having meetings, and how then Robert Mueller was, was appointed to investigate this whole thing. And on that guy's team for a long time, because he was there for 12 years as the, as the director, was Peter, Stray, uh, Peter Strzok and, and Page and the tech anti-Trump. It's like, how could he even trust any of these people anymore? I mean, how could you even trust someone like Mueller? I mean, they need to go someone. This is all a tight circle of this little swamp. Well, I, I think that's why Trump brought some of his family members on board, because he really doesn't know who he can and can't trust. It makes me understand why some of his tweets are the way they are. Like, he's just, he never tweets very, like, politically correct, or, or he doesn't screen it by, no one screens it. And he's just frustrated, you know, and he just kind of, wings out a, a tweet out of frustration but i get the frustration yeah i, I get it, it could be frustration to, to me it's just trump just probably just doesn't care you know he's like ah, this is how i feel and i'm gonna tweet about it well yeah yeah but i mean his feelings are i see where the feelings are coming from at least but yeah that's that's it, it for me on that okay so i guess one of the other topics we wanted to try to get to on this podcast was the the trump wall so joey for me I, I really don't think this Trump wall thing is about securing the border. Uh, for me, it, it's an immigration issue. And, you know, when this country was founded, we had, I guess, about 4 million people, uh, roughly the size of Alabama today. And we were a much different country back then. Uh, the founders wanted people from all over to come and help and settle and, and really just build the country. And we don't have that same issue anymore. So unfortunately, immigration today is, is used uh, as a tool to try to achieve political power. So you have the Republican Party, who it seems like favors people coming here to work and to assimilate into the American culture. Mm. And the Democratic Party seems like they just want a whole bunch of people to come in and give them free stuff to get their votes. So, uh, of course, the Republicans want to fight this, and then thus now you have this the huge hoopla and fight over immigration. So for me, the border wall has nothing to do with security. It's really about immigration, and 
there really aren't that many dangerous illegals crossing the border. Uh, you hear about them occasionally in the news, but it is actually pretty rare when you look at the numbers. I think most people are coming here just looking for a job, try to get a, uh, a better chance at life, because, you know, let's be frank, places where these people are coming from probably suck, and otherwise they wouldn't try to come here illegally. Well, you said you think the wall is about immigration. Do you mean illegal immigration, right? Yes. Immigration in general, the, the differences uh, between the two parties on, on how uh, they think immigration should be handled. So in general on immigration, I think we should kind of be picky about who comes here. You know, we don't have to take everybody. If people want to come here to work in general, I think we should let them. And uh, if they can find someone willing to hire them and give them a job, then great. Uh, but if they can't find a job, and they can't support themselves, well, then I, I think they should leave. I don't believe in giving these people or anybody welfare. Now, to get more into like the legality of the situation, I want to go back a few years to try to understand this uh, whole presidential wall and uh, power situation. Now, the increase in presidential power goes all the way back to our first president, George Washington. So, by all accounts, George Washington was like a not just, you know, I guess a good president, but he was like an all-around, like, great person. Obviously, we know about his exploits during the Revolutionary War. Uh, he was a very polished man. He was like a sensational athlete and, uh, you know, hobnobbed with a whole bunch of the kind of influential people in the country and in Virginia. Uh, the problem, or one of the problems I have with George was the Whiskey Rebellion. And I don't know if you remember, but the Whiskey Rebellion was over a new tax that Alexander Hamilton wanted George to, uh, or wanted the general government to institute because uh, the country was in debt. You know, we just had uh, just finished a war and we, we got a lot of funding from France and so we owed them a lot of money. And each state had a certain amount of debt and one way was to, you know, have these excise taxes placed on things. And so, you know, Hamilton, uh, not being much of a farmer, he was more of a, of a city merchant type guy. He had this plan for an excise tax on whiskey. And of course, a bunch of people in Pennsylvania who were producing whiskey didn't want to pay the tax. And so Hamilton really was wanted, he was urging George Constantly, constantly whispering in his ear to, uh, you got to do something, you got to put down this rebellion, you know, they, you got to make an example. George Washington didn't have the presidential authority to do that. So in order for George Washington to send in the troops, you needed the Pennsylvania governor or the state legislature to ask for help. They had to kind of basically give permission for George to send in the army. And that never happened. The Pennsylvania governor figured this was something that they could work out. But, you know, at uh, the constant urging of Alexander Hamilton, George did send in the troops. Okay, so that's example one. The Another thing that George did that kind of uh, overstepped his bounds was the, uh, the declaration of neutrality between France and Britain. So what I meant to say was that the declaration of neutrality uh, with France and Britain 
Now, Britain and France have been fighting for, like, forever, for hundreds of years. And obviously, France sided with us during the Revolutionary War and gave us a lot of aid. And then they were fighting with the British afterwards, uh, and they wanted us to help. A lot of people in the U.S. were, at, at this time, were just done with war. Um, they didn't believe in getting into, you know, entangling alliances overseas. And uh, George didn't really want to get involved. So he ended up issuing what is called the Declaration of Neutrality, that he, we weren't going to get involved on either side. But he didn't have the power to do that. So because the Constitution only gave Congress the ability to declare war, that means they also therefore gave Congress the ability to declare peace. So this is just another example of George overstepping his presidential powers. Now, why is that important? Well, if you fast forward a tiny bit to Andrew Jackson and the, uh, the Tariff of Abominations in 1832, passed by the, the general government and then nullified by the state of South Carolina by a convention of the people. And President Jackson said that, no, 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 no way. We're all one people. We're not a pact of different states, which is not right. And that trying to resist federal law by like an armed resistance was treason. But here's the problem. The Constitution didn't form a single nation. It formed a general government, which was acceded to by the separate states and therefore, any state at any time could also secede. So Jackson threatened armed invasion. Uh, eventually, things got worked out. But that's just another example of kind of one-upping what George did on this whole presidential power kick. And unfortunately, this leads directly into the same argument that Abraham Lincoln used to wage war in the South when they seceded from the Union. So Lincoln's argument was very similar to you know, some of the other nationalists who believed in a strong national uh, government like Alexander Hamilton, and there were a couple of Supreme Court justices who were really important in our early times. It was Justice Marshall and Justice Story. So Lincoln's actions were similar to George and Andrew Jackson, and one bad action by a president sets a precedent. Uh, Lincoln said that the Union existed before the Articles of Confederation and before the Constitution, and thus the Union could not be destroyed or taken apart by a state leaving. He said all the states uh, had to agree if another state wanted to secede, but this isn't true. Now, if you remember the Declaration of Independence, it said that we are a free and independent states, not a free and independent Union. Lincoln also decided that the southern states were in a state of rebellion, now we've heard that before, and uh, not in secession, and therefore he could use force to keep them in a union. All right, so there were some uh, other problems with Lincoln. Now, in my opinion, he was, he was a really bad dude. He was probably the worst president in American history, and you're not going to hear a lot of people say that. Some people say that, you know, he saved the union and freed the slaves, but that, that's a kindergarten understanding of Lincoln. And, you know, we're much better than that on this podcast. So if you think about what he did, he trampled over the Constitution, which was the law of the land, and he swore to protect the Constitution, but that didn't go very far. He didn't seek any sort of peace or compromise with the South, and his actions led to the death of over 700,000 Americans. 
And that's a huge number, not even in like today's standards, like back then. That was an enormous, an enormous part of the population. And that's just soldiers. And there were a lot of civilians killed too. Additionally, the, the Reconstruction period after the war was a pretty bad time, especially in the South. And this really set back America for decades. Let me see some other bad things. He uh, unilaterally suspended habeas corpus. Uh, he sent troops to polling places to intimidate voters and to vote illegally for uh, people that Lincoln wanted to be put in power. Uh, he seized mail and searched mail of senators. Uh, he instituted the draft. He imprisoned political enemies, and uh, he shut down newspapers that had dissenting opinions and threw the newspaper owners in jail. Remember, there, were, there was no declaration of war from Congress when Lincoln decided to invade. Now, if the South was its own new union and they had seceded, then he would have had to get a declaration of war from Congress. But if you go with his argument that the South was in rebellion, then you needed the governors or the state legislatures to ask for help and ask uh, for troops to be sent in. Now, if you look at the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, that was basically the first use of an act of war powers by a president. Uh, the presidents don't have proclamation power, according to Article 2 of the Constitution. There was a Supreme Court justice, Curtis, at the time, who said this was illegal, the Emancipation Proclamation, but nobody cared enough to do anything about it. Some other un unconstitutional acts by Lincoln was that the first income tax he started, uh, which was, of course, later declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. He reestablished a central bank, and he instituted other, you know, high protective tariffs. I didn't know Lincoln was behind those. He he was behind the first income tax? He definitely was. So, basically, as you could see, the presidents Washington and Jackson kind of set the stage for Lincoln to significantly increase the power of the executive and then the general government. But Lincoln really took it all to a much higher level. And now you have presidents kind of just wanting to, they want to do whatever they want. And if we fast forward to close to modern day, in 2014, Barack Obama was frustrated that Congress would not pass his package of protections for illegal immigrants. And though he said that he lacked the legal authority to permit them to stay, he then claimed unilateral powers to do so. And Obama gave uh, these illegal uh, residents uh, U.S. work permits and then letting them then compete with uh, Americans for jobs. President Trump is also frustrated by his inability to get the core of his immigration package through, which is basically just building a wall. So recently, in the past week or so, he's exercising some sort of unilateral power that would let him start putting up a barrier. Now, it's, it's important to recognize that Trump's actions mirror those of Obama's, both in political structure and objective. So both moves have bad political effects for one side. Uh, they both uh, play to the base of their party. And the really bad thing is that they encourage the next president to take even more unilateral action rather than try to get a bill through Congress. So now... As a general rule, the greater the scope of the unilateral presidential action, the
the more politically polarized the nation becomes. So this broad unilateral authority exercised by a president encourages citizens to think that they can sweep their opponent's preferences under the table. And that's what it seems like we have today, kind of every four to eight years, half the country is really pissed about who's in charge, and the other half is happy. And they want their party in power to kind of either oppress the other side or, you know, reverse what the other guy did four years ago. And the whole system just is really messed up. It, it doesn't follow the original intent of the Constitution at all. You know, passing laws at the general government level was supposed to be hard to do, not easy. Uh, and passing laws in the states where individuals are much closer to their representatives is supposed to be where kind of most of the government, governing is taking place. The general government is constantly doing things that it wasn't designed to do. Now, overall, in my opinion, immigration really should be more of a state's issue and not a national issue. This may sound weird, but mm -hmm. if each state uh, is supposed to be its own sovereign entity, kind of like a country, uh, for example, let's say Texas unemployment rate is really low, it doesn't need a lot of people, uh, they might want to restrict or control who comes into their state and be more picky about it. Alternatively, maybe a state like California who wants to take, you know, anybody and everybody, or maybe their unemployment rate is high and they need workers, well then uh, they should be able to accept more people if they want. So each state could restrict who lived in that state. With an overriding central government, this really isn't the case anymore. The central government just wants to tell the states who they have to accept and how many. So that was, a, that was a pretty big digression. But if we get back into the legality of the Trump wall, now whether you like the idea of the wall or not, is it illegal? Does the president have the legal authority, according to the Constitution, to declare a state of emergency and build the wall? Now, you know, reading the Constitution in its original meeting, this action by the president is very problematic and I think unconstitutional. So Article 1 requires Congress, uh, not the president, to make the laws and appropriate funds. And recently, Judge Napolitano on Fox, uh, who I love and respect, has already come out and said that no, uh, Trump does not have legal authority to do this. And that the Supreme Court has made it very clear in the past, even in times of emergency, the president of the United States cannot spend money unless it has already been authorized by Congress. So Article 2 talks about some uh, uh, presidential duties, and let me read uh, what Article 2 says. He shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration uh, such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient, and he may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them, and in the case of disagreement between them, with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such a time as he shall think proper. Uh, he shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. So, is the president a chief legislator? No. 
He can recommend things to Congress and convene the Houses of Congress, but Congress can just ignore it and do whatever it wants. Now, of course, the president has the power of the veto uh, to keep Congress in check. And remember, uh, they are supposed to be uh, co-equal branches of government designed to keep each other in check anyway. But there is nothing in the Constitution about the president having emergency powers. So, again, where does this power come from? Again, I think it's, it's coming from things that former presidents have done and gotten away with. So if we go back to Lincoln for a minute, remember Abraham Lincoln used emergency powers to invade the South, and he said that the South was still in the Union, but was in a state of rebellion, and he needed to emergently send in the troops and put down the rebellion and enforce the laws of Congress. The, the recent law of Congress that kind of, I guess, tipped the hat for the South to leave was a, a, another big tariff that was placed on them. And, of course, then Lincoln, where did he get this idea? He got it from Andrew Jackson. And then Andrew Jackson kind of got the precedent from George Washington. So it goes all the way back. So the emergency powers uh, are basically things that dictators and kings do, not elected presidents under our constitutional republic. I mean, the founders were very careful not to give the president dictatorial powers. Now, would a president have the power to call up the army if we're invaded? Well, yes. So as commander-in-chief of the army, in an an emergency situation such as an invasion, yes, then he could call up the the troops, but then he would also need Congress to declare a war and appropriate monies after. So he he still has to have Congress appropriate the funds for even if it is a military sort of action? Well, he can't actually start a military action on his own. He has to have... Congress is supposed to declare war. And, you know, as far as another country or group of countries invading the United States, he can respond in an emergency situation uh, and then have Congress convened to declare war and appropriate the money. But he can't just go and start wars on his own. But even responding in an emergency situation. Yeah, but when has the United States ever been in that sort of situation? No, but um, I'm just trying to see maybe this is the angle, like uh, border security, the emergency, then it's funded through the military because maybe he would have the legal authority to fund through the military if that's the case. Is that what they're trying? I think that's probably what they're trying, and that might be the angle they're, they're looking to pull off. However, I, I think they're really stretching, and it... Mm-hmm. Whatever Trump tries here is probably going to end up going to the courts and be declared unconstitutional. And I I mean, as far as another country coming in and bombing you and killing your citizens, that's way different than a whole bunch of immigrants coming across the border looking for a job. You know, completely different situation. So, Joey, I've got another example for you of someone else channeling President Jackson and Lincoln. And of course, that's yeah, I was gonna say that's good because my early history isn't that good. It, my all I know about you know the early days comes from Hamilton the musical, so I'm I'm learning. That's because you went to a government school. Exactly. So FDR during the Great De- Depression, he said if Congress didn't work with him, he would take temporary broad executive power against the emergency as if we were being invaded by a foreign foe. So. That seems like that's the formula now going forward that 
a president can declare an emergency, and then you, you can do whatever you want to deal with that emergency. So what's the moral of the story here? Is that when presidents do bad things, future presidents can do much worse things. Congress and the Supreme Court are completely emasculated or just don't care, or many times, because it's someone on their, on their team committing the illegal act, they let it go. And so for my Republican and conservative friends and listeners, it's, I know how much you probably want a wall, and maybe the wall will help in some way, but, but the way Trump is going about trying to get it done is just going to set us up for an even worse executive power grab in the future. And if you think about who may come into, I guess, power after Trump, you have people like Bernie Sanders that want to have free education for all. Well, you know, why can't he just say that educating everybody is a right and it's an emergency and then just declare it so? Uh, free health care for all because you have old and young people dying in the streets. Just call it an emergency and they'll get that through. And, uh, you know, poverty kills. So we need universal basic income for everybody. And so that'll be that that could be another future emergency. I hear you. It's tough. It's tough because I hear what you're saying, and it's not good to set dangerous precedents. We don't want that. But we want the wall, man. At the same time, we want that wall. I I, I feel your pain. So with all that being said, I guess my, my take, or my libertarian take on the immigration issue is that I, I actually do believe countries, yeah, including the U.S., should be able to secure their border. Uh, a wall can be a way of doing that. Uh, I think, however, with modern technology, uh, you probably don't need as much of a physical barrier, and you could probably do some of that with like, some sort of electronic or, or technological barrier. Uh, but I do think countries have a right to know who's coming in and what they're planning on doing in your country. Uh, we definitely want more people to be able to come here and able to work, and we want less bad people coming in. So how do we figure that out? Well, I think we should make it easier for people to come here legally into the U.S. and work. Uh, they don't necessarily have to become citizens or, or vote. Uh, and therefore, because it's easier to come into the country legally, more people will opt to do so, and therefore the ones kind of sneaking into the country will be much easier to find. So, yes, securing the border, knowing who's coming into the country, I believe these are good and, and moral things that, you know, countries should do. Uh, it's also, it's probably, we can chalk this up to part of the general government's job maybe to kind of protect its people, if you want to look at it that way. However, for the president to do it uh, in the way he's trying to do it now is for me, it's just not right. It's, it's unconstitutional, and it's going to just set us up for something worse later. Right. Well, we know why he's doing it this way is because he's just he needs to, before his next election, get something done at the wall. Otherwise, he feels he's not going to be reelected. Absolutely. This is going to play into one of his talking points for his you know candidacy when he was out there in every other speech talking about the wall. This is great for his base. No doubt about it. In my opinion, the best way of cutting down on like the bad people coming into the country is to, to legalize all drugs. And now I know this might sound radical, and, but I don't really think it is. The war on drugs started, I don't know, what is like 50 years ago, and it's a complete failure. 
if drugs were completely legalized, uh, therefore they could be manufactured and regulated here in the U.S., then all the crime associated with getting it across the border and into the country and sold onto the streets would really disappear in a short period of time. Now, there are plenty of people probably against legalizing drugs for some moral reason, and they would probably say that we'll end up with so many more uh, drug addicts, but I, I don't believe this to be the case, and I don't think the statistics bear this out in other countries. Many people do end up trying drugs and maybe never trying them again, or they just occasionally use drugs. Uh, my position is that I don't think we should put someone in jail for trying drugs. Therefore, we shouldn't put someone in jail for selling drugs. Uh, if this were uh, legalized and regulated uh, by the market, let's say you go to a place that's selling you a drug such as marijuana, you use it and you have a bad reaction, well, then that business can be held liable for harming you. You can sue that business, just like you can sue a business now if you buy a product from them and the product harms you. So that will regulate the market to the point where businesses that are doing people harm are going to go out of business and businesses that are selling safer drugs will flourish. Uh, the way it is now, people can get just about any drug they want whenever they want, but they have to do this on the black market. And the black market isn't safe. Uh, there's a significant criminal element associated with it, and many times you have no idea what you're actually getting when you buy it. The substance you buy doesn't have to be pure. The drug dealer you're buying it from doesn't have to make sure they're provi providing you with a good product. Uh, they can't be sued or held liable in court. They can only be arrested and thrown in jail. Now, how does that help you if you bought something from them the drug harms you in a way that was unexpected, maybe for the type of drug you were interested in using. It just doesn't. And a nice little story to go kind of emphasize the point about the statistics is that uh, Ron Paul once gave a speech in front of a large audience where he said, okay, I just snapped my fingers and all drugs are legal in the United States. Now, how many of you are going to go out tomorrow and use drugs? And nobody raised their hands. So right now, We've got a situation where people who want to use drugs can get them and use them. The substances they buy don't have to be pure or safe, and there are no quality measures to make sure what you're buying has the same concentration of the drug that you bought from the same person last time. You can get arrested and thrown in jail for buying. You can get arrested and thrown in jail for using or selling. So if you want to cut down on uh, gun violence and deaths associated with this the legal drug industry, I think you got to legalize the drugs. The violence and the deaths are all because of the black market for this industry. And the drugs and the, the bad people or bad hombres bringing the drugs across the border would really stop because it would be so much easier and cheaper to produce the drugs here. It just wouldn't make business sense for them to be coming across the border the way they are now. So the, the combination of like securing the border, legalizing drugs, and making legal immigration easier, those three things would significantly cut down on types of people we don't want coming into the country and also increase the types of people we do want coming into the country. So, you know, for Trump to just build a wall, this is just a Band-Aid. Uh, this doesn't stop the drugs from coming in or bad people from coming in. There's a ton of drug use inside of prisons, for example. Now, if the government can't keep drugs out of prison, which have guards 
and walls and barbed wire, then what makes you think the government can keep drugs from coming across the border? I mean, the drug war is, is just a complete failure, makes no sense. Tons of innocent people are killed because of it, and tons of people are thrown in jail for using drugs. So if, if you believe in liberty, then and if people want to do drugs and try them, it, it's, not, it's not anybody else's business. You may believe you have a moral obligation to try to talk them out of it, which is fine, and which is what I would do. However, throwing someone in jail for trying drugs is immoral, in my opinion. Now think about how silly it sounds. You can go out and smoke a plant, and then in some states, you can go to jail for over a year. And I think that's ridiculous. In general, the government just isn't here to protect you from doing stupid things. The government is here to protect you from, let's say, like an outside invasion, or and to protect your rights. So I, I do believe it's your right to harm yourself if you want to. Okay, Joey, any comments? Well, there was a lot there, and I was mainly just listening and learning to a lot of the history stuff. On the legalizing drugs part, I'm still a bit skeptical. You said that the, the stats don't bear out any sort of negative impact. I'd like to take a look more at those, at the stats of maybe like the state of Colorado and stuff. And I know the last time I looked, it was a, it was a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, there might have been some, some sort of like stats showing expulsion rates being higher among kids and, and um, a little bit of crime stats that could be related. So I'd want to take a look. I mean, we have some examples that maybe of these states where they did legalize where we can get a better picture before anybody did an outright ban on all of it. But I think your points are good, and I think the logic is pretty sound. But um, I'm still a little – it does make me a little uneasy. So I'd like to see a little more if we can look up the effects of of what's going on there. I, I do have a question for you. Okay. So the kids in some of these states that are trying drugs occasionally, let's say if the drugs are still illegal and someone tries a drug and gets caught, do you want to throw that kid in jail? A kid? Sure. Um, no. Okay. So by extension, regular working mom or dad smokes wants to smoke a little marijuana or something occasionally on a weekend do you want to throw that mom or dad in jail for for doing that no okay so there there is recognition on your end that people doing drugs on their own not harming someone else doesn't really doesn't make much sense to take that person and, and throw them in jail for it um, it's just not much of a difference, uh, between drinking and getting drunk on your own to, you know what I mean? So I can't, I can't really, yeah, I can't really argue that. Exactly. Exactly. And we had prohibition in our country, uh, which was a huge failure and it took them a while to recognize that it was a huge failure and they reversed it. So I think to me, it's only a matter of time before, more and more states continue to legalize, and it's it's going to happen. It's going to be a slow going process, you know. But but from my point of view, it, it's I just don't believe throwing people in jail for doing drugs is the right way to treat it. The situation, right? I, I think that's worse. You can, you know, set up drug treatment programs 
for people, make it very easy for them to get into a treatment program. If we didn't spend anywhere near the amount of money on the drug war, we'd have so much more money for people to set up foundations uh, for drug treatment. And I think that would be uh, ubiquitous. It would be out there for uh, everyone to, to kind of take part in. It wouldn't be something that was, I guess, as socially unacceptable as it is now because it's associated with being a, a criminal event, right? So you have some drugs on your possession, you get arrested, and now you have uh, a rap sheet. And having that criminal event is what I think turns off a lot of people to the drug situation. You see, because of the fact that using or possessing drugs is still considered a crime, that most people who should and probably would seek treatment don't because they don't want to be caught. They don't want to get arrested and treated like a criminal, and so therefore, instead of seeking treatment, they avoid getting the treatment that they need, and their drug problem, if they have one, probably just gets worse. So by removing the criminal element, I think more people would get treatment earlier and sooner than they otherwise would if it was still illegal. Okay, well, thank you everybody for listening to our show. And if you haven't gone and checked out our website, please do so, libertyonfire.org. If you are downloading this on iTunes, please, if you can, go and subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating and review, hopefully five stars. And with that, I will see you next time. 